Let me uh, move to our headline panel discussion and invite our three esteemed speakers, the Honorable Minister of External Affairs, Dr. Jay Shankar, uh, Wiki Ford, Minister of State for Development, FCDO, United Kingdom, and uh, of course, Borge Brende, who will bring the business end of the conversation up, uh, President of the World Economic Forum. So can I request you to join me on stage? Good evening. Can you hear me? Yes, you can. So it works. Great. So, uh, so Borgia, let me start with you. Um, as someone who's outside of government but not unaware of its workings, uh, since you were yourself a minister, uh, what are your expectations from this G20 coming at this moment? That's the India is going to assume a presidency at a time when the world, <coughs> one could argue, is a complicated place. Uh, we don't necessarily agree with each other. We are still recovering from uh, one of the worst um, crises of uh, of this century and certainly of the last hundred years. Um, globalization is under question. Um, international cooperation in many ways is more uh, fragile and in many ways weaponized as well. Um, in this scenario, what are expectations from Borge Brende, someone who talks to 2,000 business leaders around the world, who convenes some of the best development institutions at, at, at the forum? What do you expect from the G20 going ahead? Thank you. And um, as you said, I think we also have to maybe say two words about uh, what kind of backdrop this presidency is happening against. Mm -hmm. And um, as you said, uh, Samir, uh, we are at the most complex geopolitical and geoeconomic uh, backdrop uh, for decades. So, of course, it's crucial that the G20 presidency um, then identify areas where we still can collaborate. I think there are pockets where still in a fractured world, there is willingness to work together. And I think India is very well positioned to do so. It's um, uh, second most populous uh, country in the world. It's now the fifth largest economy in the world. Uh, it's also a democracy and has uh, combined with the soft power also no uh, leverage in many areas. But even India as uh, this uh, fast-growing emerging economy can only bring the horses to the well, but you cannot force horses yeah. to drink the water. So um, what are uh, the areas where there can be some consensus on uh, then pushing uh, the envelope. I think that's uh, one important question that has to be asked. We also have to remember what is the G20. You know, the first time that G20 met at head of state and head of government level was uh, in October 2008, after Lehman Brothers went bust. Mm -hmm. Uh, then um, they gathered in Washington, D.C. and agreed on this unparalleled fiscal and monetary package to make sure that we did not um, see, um, we didn't end up with uh, a global depression. It was a great recession, but it didn't turn into a depression. So how can we now make sure that the energy crisis, that is the worst one since 1973, the oil crisis, and the inflation pressure and the economic downturn does not now end into a 
very, very serious long-term recession, so we repeat the 1970s. It can even end up in stagflation. Uh, so a lot is at stake, and what are the things we then can agree on in uh, such a situation, and that has to be identified. And, of course, things are not moving in the right direction for the first time in three decades. We have no this year, an increase in the amount of people living in extreme poverty, probably 70 million. And uh, we also, this year, will see that less people have access to modern electricity. So if India with uh, Indonesia and other key actors can identify, for example, a global package for leapfrogging renewables, if India, under its leadership, can also together with Indonesia that uh, that has the meeting in Bali now in November, can look at are there some measures that we can agree on to also increase inclusiveness but still then create growth, how to avoid also beggar thy neighbor approach. Mm-hmm. We should go for a prosper your neighbor approach. And then the last point uh, is how to stop the war or wars. Mm-hmm. That's... Uh, because the war is at the, at the core, and I'm talking about Ukraine, is at the core of creating no more and more global challenges. So a simple challenge for the Indian G20 presidency is to solve all of these problems that you just No, no. So, so um, I was afraid that uh, you probably would do that with me, Samir. Uh, <laughs> but um, I, I, I think we need to be very realistic. That's why I said that thing, used that analogy with the horses. And it's G20. We also have to be realistic at what has G20 achieved after the G20 meeting in October 2008. Correct. The 2008 meeting was consequential. Mm-hmm. That was uh, G20 at its best. Mm-hmm. And let's then see, since uh, uh, you know, in, in, in the 14 last years, what what has different presidencies achieved in addition to having uh, important meetings where leaders could uh, talk to together. So we have to be realistic at what can be achieved. Fair point, uh, Boge. Let me turn to Minister Ford. I think the crux of Boge's intervention is that when you had to save the banks, you were able to put together the money and save the financial system. But when it comes to saving the planet or helping the world, helping ease poverty and, and suffering, we don't do really that well as rich countries. I think that's the point uh, Borgi was making without being as uh, as gentle as I am. Uh, uh, so how do we create a credible finance package to solve some of these crucial questions of development, of climate, of planet? And, and you guys have yeah. been in this business for a long time at FCDO. Yeah. How do we do it? Yeah. Um, so really good question. How do you get that whole package together? But first of all, can I just say massive thanks to our very gracious host, and to His Excellency, the Foreign Minister, Prashanka, for organizing this event. You know, this G20 imperative is absolutely the right question. It's got to be green growth and development for all, not either or. Um, We've got so many different challenges in the world. We've got economic challenges. We've still got the educational challenge with so many children who missed out on school during COVID, environmental issues, health issues, climate crisis. And all of this is hitting the most vulnerable countries. 
um, hitting the most vulnerable people. So the G20 does absolutely need to focus on how do we achieve those sustainable development goals. Um, we're absolutely committed from the UK to doing everything that we can to help our great friends in India on the journey through this presidency. Those development goals are so well off track. Um, we're at the halfway point or close to the halfway point to 2030. We've got 50 million people on the brink of famine across 46 countries. This week at the Transforming Education Summit, we learned that the majority of children under the age of 10 cannot read. And if you cannot read, what is your opportunities in the future? Um, one in 20 children are still dying from malaria before the age of five. And then you've got these real extremes of uh, climate-related weather events um, that they've really set back some of the gains we've made in development policy. Um, I was in Malawi earlier this year where, you know, the tragedy of the cyclone there that took out 40% of their electricity completely diverted the main river that goes through mm -hmm. the hydroelectric power. You know, we've seen the Pakistan floods, but other countries, South Sudan, Puerto Rico, wiping away years of work, and then conflicts. You're absolutely right about conflict. I think in your opening remarks, you suggested that we were only focusing on Ukraine. That's absolutely not true. We need to focus on the conflict that's happening in so many parts Different of the world, part. particularly, you know, Ethiopia, dreadful drought tragic conflict, huge humanitarian crisis. So we need to really look at areas where we can cooperate and try and find solutions. We need to find um, solutions to um, famine and food insecurity, humanitarian situations, health sickness, etc., etc. And also, as I'm the girl here, okay, we need to find the solutions that work for women and girls. Because mm -hmm. it's often the women and girls that are most affected, where you have conflict, where you have climate challenges, where you have poverty. And so the three E's are educating girls, empowering women, and ending violence against women. You need to embed all of that. And, and to do all of that, you need to make sure you've got the money to do it. Okay? Mm -hmm. So we need to find much easier ways that you can access finance for development. And this is where the, the banker in me comes in, previous, previous careers. You know, ODA is still a crucial part of development finance. The UK uh, is still one of the largest contributors of ODA in the world, and we're absolutely committed to making sure that ODA is directed towards the lowest income countries, especially countries, many countries in Africa where the development progress is further behind. But you also need to remember that the majority of development finance actually comes from national governments themselves, uh, private sector, and often from citizens themselves. So we need that sort of mixture of different financial resources as well as international investments. Um, we need to keep have a really honest review of the current development financing landscape um, because it's not working well at the moment okay we need to to, to look at how, what is working and what isn't working and what make sure that we can um, accelerate funding into areas where it's needed before the problem gets even worse and that's mm -hmm. a lot of the discussions I've had this week is how can you accelerate 
can get ahead of some funding. So that means thinking outside the box, how you do your partnerships, taking more risks with more innovative financing mechanisms. Um, and in the G20 and other fora, we've been talking a lot about blended finance, um, unlocking sources of funding that kind of multiply our impacts. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you a little example. Earlier this year, I signed a big guarantee to the African Development Bank. That'll help them to unlock another $2 billion of lending on their balance sheet mm-hmm. that they can get into especially improving agriculture. So um, there's a techie issue that's happening at the G20 on capital ad- adequacy frameworks for the multilaterals. Um, that could also help to unlock more financing. So, so that's um, an important work. Um, COP27 is also a big moment. So um, we need to keep doing everything we are doing on development. We mustn't drop the green growth side as mm-hmm. well. We have to deliver the promises that we made at COP because otherwise everything that we do on development will be meaningless because we will have not met the climate challenge. So before I, I'm going to turn to uh, the Honorable Minister uh, from India. But before that, let me just leave a, a question with Borghe and with Minister Ford. Uh, a few months ago, uh, I was in a conversation with the Speaker of the Maldives Parliament. Yeah. And he mentioned that we are facing, all island countries in that part of the world, are facing a twin challenge of debt traps and, and terrible climate consequences. Yeah. Uh, you know, the economies are so fragile, how do you fund them? And they need funding if they have to survive the climate challenge. So I'm just leaving this and I want to come back to... Can I just say one more thing on that? So my background before politics was infrastructure finance, Mm -hmm. okay? And if you don't have good infrastructure, your economy will never grow. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we've been doing in the UK is really focusing on how can we make sure that we can help unlock the power of the City of London, world's largest financial centre, into more reliable infrastructure finance offers that we are doing in a public-private partnership way through our development organisation. We've committed to unlock up to £8 billion worth of development financing now and the end of of infrastructure financing uh, for developing countries in the next couple of years. And that is key to making this work. Minister Jayashankar. The Secretary General described this moment as a moment of overlapping overlapping crises. I see that as your foreign policy calendar going ahead. Uh, SCO chairmanship, G20 chairmanship, somewhere in the middle you're doing something in the Security Council, and of course all the other alphabet soup of organizations that you manage. How do you see this moment for India, where you have to manage these competing, conflicting interests, and yet... Try and make G20 consequential. If I was to pick a word out of Borges' intervention, is it going to be consequential? And how do we make it consequential managing these overlapping crises? Many of you, many of which are going to be pretty much a part of the groups that you are going to be steering. Um, well, you know, uh, first let me enter one small caveat. We still have a few months to go of the Indonesian uh, presidency mm-hmm. of the G20 mm-hmm. and they are very consequential months because mm-hmm. the summit has to take place in November uh, and uh, to a certain extent uh, uh, you know what India can do or cannot do will depend on those months because we inherit the presidency after that 
if you ask me uh, what's the big thought or big concern I have with G20, uh, to, to borrow a phrase from American politics, I think it's very important to let G20 be G20. Mm. Because if G20 gets distracted or completely preoccupied on issues which are not the G20's uh, remit, uh, because again I go to what uh, Borges said, how, you know, look at the history of G20. It met uh, at a time of a major global financial crisis. In the 14 years, I think he's a bit harsh about its about its working. Uh, I think they do have achievements, uh, but uh, the achievements are largely on the financial side, on the on the broader economic side, uh, to some degree on the on the socio economic side. Uh, so it's important uh, that the G20 stay there, mm-hmm. refocus there. Uh, now, uh, and, and we'll know, uh, after the Bali meeting whether that is indeed the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second point, uh, I would make is that, uh, the current times, you know, um, uh, I'm, you know, the 2008 crisis was a different kind of crisis. But by any standards, I would assert we are in a crisis today. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, if you look at, I mean, I just take this week, okay? I mean, we are completing the the week of the high-level segment of the Unga. So, I'd say roughly this week, I would have met about uh, maybe 60-plus foreign ministers, uh, two-thirds of them from the developing world. Yeah. Okay. And if there was a common concern that they had, and some of them were very, very expressive about it, uh, the concern is that, you know, there's an energy crisis, there's a food crisis, there's a fertilizer mm-hmm. crisis, there's a debt crisis, there's a climate crisis, yeah. and nobody's listening to them. Yeah. So, uh, now the G20 is the ideal body to listen to them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, one of the <coughs> uh, uh, decisions we made, therefore, was actually to broaden the a number of uh, guests whom we invite to the G20, we've already announced the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so that we get more voices mm-hmm. uh, who are talking about some of the real problems of the world which are not getting the uh, the uh, attention, uh, the recognition or the uh, awareness that we should. So I think at this time, uh, you know, yeah. when we look at the G20, uh, uh, I mean, you spoke about other organizations. I mean, yes, each organization is different. Each one has a separate mandate. But I think some of these problems are today common. I mean, uh, pretty much every conversation today comes back to these these issues. Fuel, food, fertilizer, debt, finance, climate. Uh, And uh, I think it's very important that uh, the world should focus there. Uh, Mr. Minister, uh, Shambi mentioned... um uh, the India model. You have a book, The India Way. Um, uh, are we going to see, in many ways, a, a test of that in the year ahead? Uh, how do we bring some of these competing forces, voices, interests, um, 
all all alignment is the new term right align with everyone how do we how do we create something consequential using the capacities of having a conversation with folks differences and try and produce a a a, a common thread that maybe it responds to what you just mentioned fuel fertilizers the subsidies finance ma'am uh, well i think the india model is a very strong word uh, i i'd say india experience uh, and if you actually look especially at the last 3 years mm-hmm. i think really remarkable things have happened in india mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes uh, uh, developments which even indians either take for granted or the enormity of it doesn't hit them because they see it in their everyday lives mm-hmm. i mean i'll start with the most obvious one uh, the fact that you could actually get 2 billion short in the arms mm-hmm. yeah uh, and i use the word short in the arm because <laughs> there are countries you know one part one part of the challenge was actually to get the vaccines mm-hmm. i think an even more dif- difficult part of the challenge was actually to get it in the arm. Uh, out of the wild into the arm mm-hmm. and a lot of countries have struggled with it and are still struggling with it and it's not just getting it into the arm it's how you got it into the arm and the the organization which went for it and there was a big take away from this because it's the power of the digital so if you look at other things which happened you know uh, developments on a big scale in a very remarkable way in a very consequential way uh if you look at the food support program that we have uh you know uh, if i had come to you samit 5 years ago and said the government has a program to regularly give food week after week to 800 million people you you would have laughed at me okay but that's what's happening in the country uh you know it was you remember when this bank account open the bank account idea started and people were wondering you know what was this about now the fact is because the bank accounts were there we actually are putting 400 you know money into 400 million plus bank accounts if the bank accounts were in there think of the problem mm-hmm. now the digital model is today you know there's this whole direct benefits transfer you know today the health uh, health cover scheme is being built on that the Uh, replacing firewood with gas is being built on that the housing scheme you know if you look at the number of houses and the beneficiaries of the houses uh, they even even in fact the multiple uh, you can say pensions and benefit schemes and each of these i mean you are looking 300 million 200 million 400 million this is on a massive scale in a very very rapid time frame so uh, if to me there's a common take away it is the application of uh, the digital uh, digital transformation uh, transformation to digital i would say backbone really to delivering uh, governance delivering governance uh, on the ground so that's one part of the answer the second part of the answer is uh, uh, in terms of what uh, we you know when you say you, you, the india way how do you deal with different people i think the difficulties of the world in the last uh, year especially but i would say even before that there is a value in country value of countries who are able to talk to everybody who are able to work with almost everybody uh, who have a kind of a 
bridging role. Now, obviously, the country is in question, and in this case, it is me. We have our agenda, we have our benefits, we have our interests, but I also believe we do a global service. Mm-hmm. So, if if I you know spend my time uh, this week in this town and uh, you know talk to 50 60 70 ministers there's a very good reason why that is happening mm-hmm. i mean uh, other than my attractive personality i think <laughs> uh, i think we are actually of use to them uh, uh, there is a value that we bring uh, to the table mm-hmm. and i think that's a very important part of uh, changing the world let me come back to borge borge what do you tell a leader in a in an island nation who is uh, struggling with getting critical finance to build sea defenses? As simple as that. His economy is going bust because he has over leveraged uh, uh, positions in terms of sovereign debts offered to him. Uh, uh, largely the, the global banker is only one these days. But uh, how do you respond to this challenge of the twin challenge of debt traps and climate responses? And how can private sector money, global partnerships respond to that? I think on your um, last point on private sector, I think private sector will have to be an important part also of the G20 uh, presidency. Because the fiscal situation in many nations is also... Um, uh, quite uh, difficult. So there is not that much additional resources to put on the table, either for ODA or uh, other uh, things to finance. So when the private sector can be also challenged to be part of alliances, for example, when it comes to Adaptation, because climate change, we used to say it's like if you should uh, think about our grandchildren, then we change to uh, our children. I know it's here; it's it's happening real time. And um, adaptation means that you also have to invest in handling what is now uh, unfolding. At COP twenty seven uh, in Sharm Sheikh, uh, beginning of November two, um, I think the Egyptian presidency will put a lot of emphasis on adaptation, and that's necessary. And we need also now to deliver on the $100 billion a year pledge that was made uh, in Copenhagen. <clears throat> then uh, on the sovereign debt crisis, of course, you have in your proximity uh, Sri Lanka, uh, you have the Maldives, and also uh, Pakistan uh, that do have a lot of debt. And uh, now with the appreciation of the dollar, and if you're not big enough as an emerging economy, like India is so big, so it's not facing the same uh, challenges. Quite the contrary, it will be now, the, of, according to our economists at the World Economic Forum, the fastest growing of um, the large uh, economies. But for those smaller and medium-sized emerging economies, this depreciation of the dollar and capital now flowing out of their markets, it's, it's, um, it's a severe thing. So... When I was saying that uh, I think this is potentially a moment for the G20 like you had in 2008. I, I'm not, just clarify, I'm not underestimating what the G20 has achieved during the 14 last years, but I don't think it comes to us like, wow, it was, uh, this was the big thing. The, the last really big thing was the 2008 where you, you mm-hmm. saved us from a depression. 
But is there in the current polarized world where the Security Council is so toxic, are there ways to then bring some consensus on, for example, a big energy revolution? And, you know, sometimes a crisis is also an opportunity to get things done. That's what we saw in 2008. And uh, look at 1973. That was the last time we had an energy crisis. And what happened with the oil crisis? Then we had massive building of nuclear power plants. Most of the nuclear power plants that are still running now was built after 73 as a result. And then there was a massive revolution of the technology when it comes came to cars. So th- back in 73, a car used like two liters per 10 kilometers. After five to 10 years, it had gone down to like a liter per 10 uh, kilometers. So um, we saw also coal, being then totally phased out in um, in shipping and also in uh, railways. So those new renewables, can we really use this opportunity to leapfrog? Because they're no competitive to the traditional energies. They are also deglobalization mm-hmm. of the energy picture because they're close to you. So you don't you also solve the security piece. Is there a way of putting together a global package that will again will like make us leapfrog into the renewables, and that solves so many problems. It solves the energy security problem. It decouples, decouples it from growth in CO2, and it also answers in the security piece. So that could be one area. Okay. So uh, what we're going to do is we're going to come to you. I have a few names that I had uh, reached out to before the evening started because we wanted it to be uh, more ordered. Uh, so I'm going to ask... Uh, uh, Amar Bhattacharya, Alexis Crow, uh, Ayode, of course, I see her here, so I'm going to come to you as well. And, and of course, Vaishali, I'm going to come to you as well this evening. So let me first start with, I'm going to give you all a minute each, so don't make it an intervention, make it a, make it a idea or a question. And then I'm going to come back to all of you uh, to try and engage with it. I'll take notes if, uh, you can pick and choose, but I'll make sure that we answer all of the four questions. Okay. So, so, uh, can I start with you, Amar? If, if can you get a mic to, uh, Amar here? Uh, Amar Bhattacharya, of course, um, is at the uh, Brookings. I'm just giving it. Go ahead. Uh, thank you, Sameer. Uh, so I just wanted to pick up on the last intervention and uh, in some sense picking up actually the theme that in some sense to deliver on this goal of green growth and development for all, mm-hmm. we will need a massive scale-up of investment combined with innovation. Mm-hmm. And the critical areas, as just was pointed out, energy transformation, a very big push on adaptation and resilience, and restoration of natural capital with a strong focus on sustainable agriculture. Now, those investment requirements are not in the hundreds of billions. They are in the trillions, and we have to recognize that. And this will require really going working on steroids on all forms of finance, domestic, international, public, and private. And I agree that private finance is where the biggest potential lies. However, having said that, we should require that for every dollar of renewable, we will need 60 to 70 cents on public investments in the grid, in backup capacity, in areas like transport infrastructure. So in this, how do we get that done? And, of course, it's a key to unlocking investment, but it's also key to unlocking finance. And we talked about the private finance, but I want to focus very much on one 
underperforming part of the system, which is multilateral development finance. And yes, the G20 Capital Adequacy Framework Report is very good, needs to be followed through. But why don't we also talk about additional capital for the MDB system? You know, the World Bank has lent $750 billion on the back of $20 billion of paid in capital. Why don't we put that on steroids for this agenda that we are talking? So that's a good question that we'll come back to you, that why don't we put the MDBs on steroids and can G20 actually be thinking about that a big question, the, uh, you know, give life to the Bretton Woods that are flailing and failing in some sense to come keep up with what's happening. Uh, Ayode, do you want to come in? Can I have a mic to uh, mic for Ayode? Uh, and she, of course, is a special envoy of the WHO at the ACT Accelerator. So Ayode, over to you. Um, thank you very much, and I will introduce myself with my other hat also, which is power, because it is the Africa Vaccine Delivery Alliance, what used to be, but is also now the Africa Pandemic Preparedness Alliance. So, like I said, when I was at Rosina earlier this year, um, Africa plus, plus India plus Indonesia plus Brazil is power. Mm-hmm. Um, and so no pressure. Minister, no pressure at all as you head into this presidency. But I'm delighted to see my friend Borge Brenda here, who um, partnered with us so beautifully in Nigeria when we had the late Chad crisis and, and brought that humanitarian partnership, true partnership to the fore. What I have to say is that I agree with you, Borge. I think we're in a huge historical moment. And as I look directly at you, Minister, you're going to have a hard next year, but we're all here to support you. Mm-hmm. I think it is like 2008, but I think it is bigger because we have a nexus of conflict. We have a nexus of COVID. Yeah. We have a nexus of climate. We have a global moment such as we've never seen before. We have an economic crisis before us. And we also, and you know, you know, nice also to see, see Vicky here. We cannot rely on our old partners because we now have to learn to stand on our own two feet. And the developing country troika, as we call it, of presidencies, Indonesia, now yourselves and Brazil, and we hope South Africa later needs to, we need to begin to look at how, as you said, we bring in those greater inclusivity of voices. I've just come from the the UN building where there was a Secretary General hosted session on, on COVID and exactly what you said, getting shots from ports to arms, but also diagnostics and therapeutics. But what everybody's forgetting is that we now have eight million COVID orphans in this world. Those are the ones we can measure because we failed to deliver on equitable access. We failed as a global community. So how does the G20 presidency, talking about all of the economic imperatives, I'm a medical doctor, I'm not very smart on math, um, and I'm a humanitarian, but talking about all those economic imperatives, how do we, and when I say we, I mean we, the whole of Africa, the whole of Indonesia, the whole of Brazil, how do we and yourselves all come together? Because this is a moment and you have the technological know-how, you have the political know-how. How do we come together to ensure that we are no longer left behind? Mm-hmm. That, I think, is the question. That is the G20 imperative. And you have a chance to reshape history. Thank you. Uh, let me now turn to Alexis Crow, Global Head of Geopolitical Investing Practice at the PwC. Where are you, Alexis? Oh, there you are. Thank you so much, Samir, and thank you, distinguished panel, minister, ministers, uh, Borge. Um, 
I have a question on the character of capital that we are deploying to energy, to infrastructure, to development. Because it strikes me that the G20 has been a lot about debt and not so much about equity. That it's been a lot about finance and not so much about investment. Um, and to speak to the character of the type of private investment that needs to come into some of these infrastructure assets, this is long, steady, patient capital that's looking mm-hmm. to a 15, mm-hmm. 20, 30-year mm-hmm. horizon. We have not spoken about the black elephant in the room, which is natural gas as a bridge fuel. Um, this is certainly something that I think many are looking to uh, to be able to fuel the energy transition going forward. There is an estimated $200 billion of dry capital, dry powder sitting in infrastructure investing funds waiting to be deployed. Could the G20 be a forum for discussion on de-risking investment in some of these assets, particularly even looking to CCUS, carbon capture? And I think that there are overlapping areas of potential risk that extend beyond electoral cycles that would endanger such investments going forward. So could there be some sort of a forum where you speak to investors uh, to be able to de-risk some of these assets and therefore fuel development going forward? Thank you, Alexis. And the final intervention, uh, let me turn to Vaishali Sena, founding chair of Renew Foundation. Can I have a mic here, please? Thank you. Yeah, hi. Thanks, Samir. And I... Um, Nice to meet you, uh, Borge, and Honorable Minister. Lovely to hear your thoughts. Uh, also, congratulations to Reliance Foundation for really stealing the ground and not just putting words on these books. Good to see the great work you're doing. I'd like to just add that uh, even at Renew, we are putting capital to good use on as far as social impact is concerned. We're doing some good work with Shombi and various other partners. Uh, so a lot of work and capital being put to use in uh, developing countries by players, private sector players locally. Uh, however, it's a little disappointing to see that, you know, the funds which were committed, the 100 billion odd funds to come to Global South for, you know, face, uh, for, to tackle issues which we see on the ground. They've just not come through. It's been, I think, three years too late since the pledge was made in Paris Agreement. So just want to see what is it that we can do or should is it time to just give up? And perhaps just, uh, you know, endorsing the point on multilateral reforms, I think uh, there is need for us to even work, uh, you know, on that because uh, we are in the renewable energy space. Uh, we see quite a lot of lack of innovation there as far as financial products are concerned. And perhaps it's time for us to see more being done there. And uh, I guess all of you are uh, folks who can make some of the change happen. Uh, so, yeah, that's all. Thank you, Vishali. I'm just going to add a little bit to this question sir, to, for, the, for the Indian minister. Um, the prime minister of India had in his speech last year at COP actually urged the developed world to think about a trillion dollars to be invested into uh, the climate agenda in the developing world. And perhaps uh, it would be fair to ask you, one year down the road, we are now approaching COP27, have we seen some movement there? Uh, You know, they asked for big commitments on net zero. They got those. Others asked for some commitment on financing. Mm -hmm. Have we moved anywhere there? And I think that's something to also uh, discuss. And that's the point I think Veshali was also 
uh, asking. So what we are going to do is we are going to turn back to Borge, then to Minister Ford, and finally to uh, Dr. Jay Shankar. So Borge, over to you. So, um, I, I thought you were going to go to the ministers first this time. <laughs> um, so, I would say that um, on the adaptation uh, piece, uh, there is a lot of pledges that are not fulfilled. And um, we'll also have to uh, be honest that the pledge from Copenhagen on the 100 billions a year to technology transfer, to also mitigation, but also adaptation, I think there is at least a gap there on 30 billion a year. Mm-hmm. And that has to be solved. But to the bigger question, though, to like how can we bring the leaders together today, as I said in the beginning, like are there pockets of areas where Xi Jinping, Putin, Biden, Modi can agree even in this very difficult global situation? I I think the climate change piece and is one area because we're all paying a very high price for it now. And, and, and the leaders do see this. So maybe... Uh, but it's complicated by the energy transitions question. Say that again? It's complicated by the energy question. You know, you don't, you can't agree on climate if you don't agree on energy. And energy is a big poser. Let's not ignore that, right? That's what the whole uh, complication is today, right? Yeah, but, 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 but as I said, I, I think there has to be, I, I think more... Leaders in G20 now see that the cost of inaction is far exceeding the cost of action when it comes to climate change. Mm. And and that's where we also have seen, you know, when we've seen this price of solar fall to one-tenth in a decade, that should also make us more optimistic about possible breakthroughs in the years to come. But then the money has to be invested in those necessary transitions. So based on this observation that we have come to a point where there are parts of our planet where it's not possible to live part of the year because of the heat now, I think that there can be a possibility for breakthroughs for example, during the G20 in such a situation. And what about and the I'm idea- thinking also about the G2, though. Let's let's <laughs> face it. The U.S. and China is 50% mm-hmm. of the global economy. I think there might be then a possibility, both in Bali, but also during um, India's leadership, to get some agreements in the energy and environment uh, or, or and climate field. I, I, I think with Russia uh, might be a little bit more tricky, uh, but we know from these global negotiations that if China, U.S., India, and Europe agrees on this, then it does happen. You know, it's 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 just. And, and is the MDB idea a good idea that Amar was mentioning? Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's uh, you know we have to go from billions to trillions, and that's the only way to use uh, the leverage. And you have to think out of the box. So maybe uh, a good way you now if is to start with the Bretton Woods Institution for India and then uh, create 
uh, new thinking uh, around uh, how you can increase uh, the bank's uh, possibility to, to to leverage more, because uh, you will not solve it with ODA. Most countries now, even in the developed world, do cut the amount Correct. of money they use to ODA, unfortunately. Mr. Ford. Okay. Um. I'm going to try and do what you said, the G20, the G20, so focus on some of the financial elements that have come up here. But I think it's also really important to remember that every country is different and there's different challenges in different countries. Over the past year, I've been huge privilege to travel to 15 different African countries, so I've seen many of the different challenges. Um, one of the questions was about the huge demand for capital. Uh, for infrastructure, some of which will be really, really long-term, that long-term patient capital. But actually, sometimes some of the investments you need can actually have quite a fast payback period, okay? Um, in, in Sierra Leone, for example, I saw mini-grids, which were dramatically changing uh, the local environment for local businesses, bringing development, and with quite a quick uh, investment return, uh, much more than the initial... Um, the, the, those who initially funded it would thought. So uh, in terms of de-risking projects so that you can bring in other investors, uh, one issue that I've been very focused on is helping the South Africans to deliver the Just Energy Transition Partnership uh, there. Uh, is a huge commitment from the UK and others at COP, but it's such an important example. They are, they are making good progress on that, and I hope that that will help to bring in more, more uh, investors as well. You asked about small island states and their particular vulnerabilities. The, the Glasgow Pact particularly pointed out their vulnerabilities. They have real challenges accessing financing, and I'm absolutely trying to use my voice as the UK for them to change, for example, some of the issues they have in accessing ODA. Um, World Bank, should they be doing more? The MDBs, we agreed a $170 billion package at the spring meeting of the World Bank to help countries who are most affected by food, fuel insecurity. Uh, should they be getting out the door faster? I think so, okay, and telling more people about what they're doing. I'm, push them to get more of it into the Horn of Africa. We need to get more of that. Uh, can we be more innovative with the financial products? Absolutely. What do they say? You can get a lot done, provided you're not the person who always wants to take the credit for it. Okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I signed a guarantee to the African Development Bank. They're getting the money out the door. That is transforming access to better seeds, for example, more climate-resilient crops, uh, science and research has been key here on this, but we absolutely, yes, we need to use the innovative tools. Um, we need to be honest when things are going wrong. Some countries have got real debts that they will not be able to repay. I think of Zambia. Um, a shining light, actually. Thank goodness they finally they managed to get their creditors around the table uh, but boy, did it take a long time for some of those creditors to come round the table, mm-hmm. and did some of us have to give them a big shove and a push? Uh, and you need to recognise that if a country is not going to be able to repay their debt, then actually you as a creditor are making your own financial situation worse if you don't help them negotiate and find a pathway through that. And then just not on the 
finance, but it, it is key. Uh, what you said, madam, I've forgot, forgotten your name, but conflict. Ayuri. Conflict, Amy. You know, when I look at the places that have got the worst humanitarian crisis in the world, Nigeria, one of them, it, it, it is conflict that's happening as well. And we need to find, in my head, a, a, the way I think about it, we need to find a better way to to look at conflict resolution and humanitarian issues together with development. And the UN's got a key role to play with that. I grew up in Northern Ireland. I spent my childhood in a part of the United Kingdom where we had conflict. I remember being in my classroom when a bomb went off across the world, hiding underneath, uh, off the road, hiding underneath my desk. We need less conflict in this planet and that will make it much easier but we need to keep the peacekeeping side of it as well sorry brain dump thank you dr jachak um, okay let me in a sense respond the way the observations were made uh, first question issue really the role of the mdbs absolutely i think it's vital mdbs if you look at the history of the post-Second World War mm. growth of the global economy, the MDBs have to lead. You know, if the MBD, MDBs lead, business will follow. And uh, somewhere there has to be uh, rethinking, re-energizing, reprioritizing out there. And particularly when it comes, you know, you referred to what the Prime Minister said uh, at uh, COP26. You know, you are not going to get that kind of uh, big-scale green growth if the MB, MDBs do not change the policies and lead accordingly. Now, the second observation about, you know, uh, how do we get together to make sure people don't get left behind? What? Now, look, uh, sadly, in fact, we're seeing more of the leaving behind rather than less of the leaving behind. Uh, during uh, During the COVID, we actually had countries which stocked up 8x the vaccine levels of their population mm-hmm. uh, and uh, countries which didn't have one-eighth the uh, vaccines of their population. Now, uh, did people learn lessons from it? I'm not so sure. Uh, we have seen in the last... I mean, just look at this year, okay? Uh, look at the food shortages... Now, we had this, uh, you know, this debate, we must let market forces prevail. We must keep it, keep the markets open. Guess who gets the food when the markets are open? I can see it all moving north. Now, we've seen the same on energy. There are countries, uh, their tenders do not elicit responses. Guess why? Because markets are working. And the markets are taking them all to Europe where premium prices are paid. So I think it's very important. You know, when I was telling you that two-thirds of the people I met on this week were really, I mean, I don't think grumbling was the word. They were really angry about the state of the world. They're angry about the state of the world because in the guise of very, you know, Politically correct formulations, they're getting shortchanged every day. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's like, that's the way the world is. Uh, and 
I think we need to ask ourselves whether, how long that's going to continue. I mean, I wish I could hold out more hope for you, but this year's experience, sadly enough, has not been terribly encouraging. The uh, the energy issue, you know, I think you use the word de-risking. So that's almost like, you know, there's an act or there are multiple acts of God and, you know, let's find a way of dealing with it. Look at the energy predicament we have landed ourselves, mm-hmm. okay? There was a opposition to Heidel projects. Now suddenly Heidel is politically correct. There's an opposition to nuclear projects. Now people are remembering nuclear. There's coal fundamentalism. Coal plants are being lighted up again. So the now if you look even at oil and gas, guess what? You put Iran out of the market, Venezuela out of the market, you want to put Russia out of the market. So what is the world supposed to do? This is not about de-risking. This is about keeping the markets alive. Mm-hmm. And these are policy choices which countries have made. So I, I think somewhere it's not about getting energy transition right. It is about getting the politics of the world right. Mm-hmm. So That's- that is something really we need. You know, we need to diagnose this right. And uh, on the on the uh, you know the funding. The hundred billion dollars. In fact, the last meeting I was in with a lot of small island developing states, some, you know, one of the ministers actually told me, he said, look, it was very hard to get hundred billion dollars for uh, climate change, which is existential. But somehow when there's a conflict, the purse strings get loosened. <laughs> if you add up all the commitments which have been made for the big conflict which is underway, we're pretty close to $100 billion there. So, uh, you know, if there's no shortage of money. There is, there is a, I would say, a lack of urgency. Uh, and therefore, to my mind, you know, it will, it will take a crisis, and I'm afraid, as you, you, you put it very well, Boge, climate change is here. It is real time. So, so, uh, I, I think between the conflicts, the COVID, the climate change, my sense is we are reaching a kind of a crisis period where, you know, the world will have to take some very radical decisions. Now, whether they get taken in the G20 or outside the G20, mm-hmm. bits and pieces mm-hmm. next year, all that we don't know. But, but it is, it is today, a I would say, truly an inflection point. Mr. Minister, final question to you as we close. Multilateralism, I think that's what you refer to in your in your comments just now. Uh, is it time to rethink fundamentally the architecture of multilateralism? Is this something that is going to be an Indian priority, G20 or outside, uh, rebuilding the undergirding of an interconnected world? Uh, you know... Uh, There are two words which are under attack currently. One is globalization and one is multilateralism. I don't think there's anything wrong with either of them. What is challengeable is how they have been implemented. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, You know, if you ask me, has multilateralism failed us? I would say this form of multilateralism in the hands of these people perhaps has not delivered. So the answer to But you won't give me the names of which people. No, you know that and look the the point is that the the solution is really 
not is more multilateralism. I, you know, everybody. Why are we all here this week? Yeah, we're all here this week because at the end of the day, people still believe, believe in it. the UN coming here, sitting together, working it out, finding a you know system. They they still believe in it. That's so true. It's absolutely true. So what is wrong? Uh, is the is the narrowness in the thinking of the custodians of the of the of the system and i would argue the same applies to globalization the real problem with globalization is it was so centralized that when the cpu had a problem or the cpu wanted to leverage it everybody had a problem mm-hmm. so the solution to globalization is decentralization decentralized globalization and I would argue the solution to multilateralism is reformed multilateralism, not a 1945 version of multilateralism, which is 75 years, 80 years uh, young or old. You want a quick intervention? I, I, I just think that what we've seen increasingly again and again over the past couple of years, whether that's COVID or whether that's the fallout in food and fuel prices because of Ukraine, is that when something happens in one part of the world, it can very rapidly mm-hmm. affect everyone around the world. Um, we had a very emotional time over the past few weeks in the UK um, <coughs> with the death of Her Majesty, and she was great at bringing the world together. And on Sunday, and she set all of her funeral plans. On Sunday night, she had planned that world leaders would come together and talk to each other informally. At her night before her funeral, they did that again for an hour whilst the crowds were dispersing after the service. I think we need every opportunity to let people talk to each other mm-hmm. informally as well as formally because it's only by listening to each other that we do make the world a better place. So I'm looking oh, forward yeah. to your Agreed. G20 when we all listen and good luck. Thank you. I think that uh, perhaps is a good... Um, point of departure and to bring this evening to a close. We are hosting this because we want this to be an arena where we can listen to each other. Uh, we want to institute a India Day every year during the UNGA week so that we can bring experiences from India, our journeys from India during that year uh, and of course uh, allow others to share their journeys as well, to learn together, to walk together, to solve together. Uh, that certainly is one attribute of Shombi's uh, India model, that is uh, diversity and differences should be celebrated, not uh, mm-hmm. cancelled mm-hmm. and and audited. Mm-hmm. And I think that could be a lesson from this evening. Uh, please join me in applauding this wonderful panel for their contributions. And uh, allow me to allow me to introduce the editor of this volume that's on your table, Vanika, and request her to propose a word of thanks. Thank you, Samir. Uh, so on behalf of uh, Reliance Foundation, the Observer Research Foundation and the United Nations India Office, I would like to thank all of our esteemed speakers tonight for a very engaging and inspiring discussion. Thank you, external uh, Minister of External Affairs uh, for India, Dr. Uh, S.J. Shankar. Uh, thank you, uh, Vicky Ford, Minister um, uh, for Development, uh, for the UK FCDO, uh, and thank you, uh, Borge Brende, President of the World Economic Forum. <laughs>